0: Uh, Paul starts his letter to the Philippians with, I thank God every remembrance of you and your participation in the gospel. And so we definitely feel that kindred spirit with you all and uh, really grateful for this, this family, this church family, especially a shout out for the Helping Hands fellas that are going to help one of our staff couples this week who are in a huge bind with their house. And so... You know who you are. I don't know who you are, but you know who you are, so thank you for that. Uh, this is a, a summer series that you all are in called Seven Summits, Elevating Our Worship Life, and it's, it's looking at some key passages in the New Testament to describe the essence of worship and how we are to enter in with Jesus. And So so far, you've talked about worshiping gratefully and sacrificially and freely and exclusively in today to worship worship preeminently. I'm uh, really honored to be part of this particular journey with you. Uh, Thinking about just the the seven summits as a backdrop, and um, we don't want to give the impression that worship is simply going from mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience. Moving from those breathtaking moments of ecstatic joy of, of worship to breathtaking moments of ecstatic joy of worship and kind of getting our way through the rest of it, you know? Uh, How many of you, when you get a vacation, are are mountain people? Raise your hands. How many of you are beach people? Okay. How many of you would just honestly rather be on your couch? Okay. No judgment. No judgment for that. Uh, My wife Leah and I, we, we love the beach. (laughs) Yeah. Amen. Uh, Leah and I really love to go to the mountains and go hiking. And so um, this is, you know, Utah and the Smokies. The other one was Rockies. This is Hawaii. We got to go there hiking last year. And uh, just a few weeks ago, we were in Kentucky. Who knew Kentucky could be so beautiful? Here's the deal. When we go hiking, a lot of times I get so focused on getting to the top to getting to a peak that I kind of miss everything in the journey. you know you notice that all of these photos are taken from the top where you can see out, where you can see the vista. But so often I I miss the beauty and the intricacy of the journey itself. And I I think sometimes we have that same danger when it comes to worship. We live from mountaintop to mountaintop and and miss the mundane with Jesus. The day-to-day, the stuff of life. And so for worship to be all of our life devoted to all of Jesus That is what we want to talk about a bit today. I think sometimes we're distracted by stuff going on down below. You know, I was on that uh, hike and there were some things going on in our families and my mind was just spinning and there was just decisions to make and, and problems to solve. And we missed the journey. When Leah and I were first married Uh, We were hiking in the Smokies, and we did a day hike up to this peak, came down to the campsite, and I realized my wedding ring was gone. And we're just, you know, pretty, just a few months into marriage, and so that's not good. (laughs) So we retraced our steps, went back up the mountain, you know, and I am just focused on the trail, and I am just spinning with worry. We get back to the campsite and and the wedding ring was in the ashes of the campfire, you know, forged from the fires of Mordor. (laughs) (laughs) So getting so focused and worried that we missed the journey or uh, spending the whole time thinking, I think I left the car unlocked, you know, and so what could be lost on this journey. Distractions and worry and anxiousness and misaligned priorities and assumptions and busyness. There are many things that can pull us away from the one thing that is needed, and that is abiding with Jesus. Here's our passage for today. It's in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Three people in this story. We find Mary at the feet of Jesus, listening, eyes fixed on him. This is the posture of worship. The gospel writers describe Mary at the feet of Jesus on three different occasions. One is in John chapter 11. Her brother Lazarus has just died. And Mary is so overwhelmed with grief that when she hears that Jesus has arrived, she can't even go to him. And when Jesus sends for her, she falls at his feet in desperation and complete exhaustion and possibly anger. She says, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. In in the next chapter, John 12, which Travis will unlock and unpack for us next week, Mary is at the feet of Jesus as a posture of surrender, attributing worth and glory and devotion. David said last week that the posture of worship was when we have our hands and knees with face to the ground, acknowledging His glory, putting ourselves in His service. We sing a worship song at Campus House that has these lyrics, "'Falling on my knees in worship.'" giving all I am to seek your face. Lord, all I am is yours. we in the words of John the Baptist, he, Jesus, must increase, I must decrease. In our passage today, Mary sits at the Lord's feet, listening to every word with wide-eyed wonder. It's a, it's a posture of closeness, of friendship, of sheer delight and trust and love. In Mary, we see a posture of worship. In her sister, we see what gets in the way of worship. We find Martha in the kitchen, working, eyes distracted by the preparations that had to be made. Lord, don't you care? that my sister left me to do all the work by myself. Tell her to help me. I mean, this was all on her. Resentment was just boiling up. Well, where's Lazarus in this story? He's not dead yet. <laughs> he could give some help in the kitchen. How many of you identify the most with Martha in this story? Be honest. OK. All right. So the rest of you would identify with Mary. Don't, don't you dare lift your hands up, because all of us Marthas will resent you. <laughs> I can identify with Martha. At 2.30 this morning, I'm cleaning poop up off of our bedroom floor. Our dog had diarrhea <laughs> in the bedroom and in the dining room. And in the living room. (laughs) It was disgusting. I was upset about many things. (laughs) 31 things, actually. I counted. (laughs) It's easy to count when you have light tan carpet. There are so many needs. There is a lot to do. There's a lot going on. We need to be efficient and proficient and hospitable. We want to be good stewards of time and resources. We need somebody to wash these pots and pans, doggone it. Martha was so busy doing something for Jesus that she missed being with Jesus. That cuts to my heart. I can identify it's been a few years since this book came out, but how many of you have read Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman? Anyone? Okay. Everybody on this side of the room? They should, they, they sifted you. Sheep and the goats. Love Languages. And, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I haven't slept, so there we go. In that book, Gary Chapman talks about the way that we receive love and kindness, right? And how the person receives love is different from sometimes from our default in how we assume they would want to receive love the same way that we receive love. Our youngest has always loved to give sweet gifts, as in completely loaded with sugar, which is not the kind of gift that we really desire. Sometimes in our effort to be kind to someone, we are kind in our own way instead of considering the kind of kindness that that person really needs. We make assumptions. So Jesus arrives with his disciples at the home of Martha, and Martha kicks into hospitality mode. Jesus and his disciples must be hungry But what Jesus really wanted, maybe needed, was the peace and the quiet of time with friends. Martha's in the kitchen. Mary's at his feet. Side note of Martha, John chapter 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, Martha's the one that goes, steps out in faith. She goes to Jesus while Mary, stuck in grief, cannot. Martha's the one who makes the statement, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. John 12, the passage for next week, so I don't want to spoil it, but they are back at the house, and Martha is back in the kitchen, and it's all good. So it's not about Martha in the kitchen here. It's not even about her hospitality versus being at the feet of Jesus. It is a posture of her heart, and in this story, Martha needs some realignment, which brings us to the third person of this story, which is Jesus. Jesus says, Martha... Martha, and I can't read that without thinking of the Brady Bunch and Jesus saying, Martha, 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 and half of you don't even know who the Brady Bunch is, and God bless you, and Jesus Says her name twice, I think to get her attention. And you know what I'm talking about because when we're so distracted and so zoned into something, someone says our name and we don't even hear it. Jesus, in tenderness and kindness, says, Martha. Martha, you. Are anxious and troubled. You are distracted. You are disturbed. You are thrown into confusion. You're overoccupied. You are too busy. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in Matthew 6 says, Don't worry about your life. Don't be anxious. The word there means pulled apart. Worry pulls us away from God's embrace. It makes our minds spin with all of the what ifs. It keeps us in a box. Jesus says you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Needed. Let that word sink in just a bit. Martha was distracted, entitled, worried because her Her perception of what was needed was distorted. It was urgent. It was tangible. It was doing something. It was practical. It was the reality of work opposed to the luxury of leisure. The needs were overwhelming. There were a million things to do. But Jesus said, no, there's only one thing that's needed to be consumed by Christ." To worship preeminently, above all, in particular, chiefly, distinctively. Psalm 95, come let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people he watches over. The flock under his care. Only one thing. Psalm 27, I'm asking God for one thing. Only one thing, to live with him in his house. My whole life long, I'll contemplate his beauty. I will study at his feet. One thing. There's another place in the gospel where that phrase shows up, it's in Luke 18. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, I want to follow you. And Jesus gives him a whole list of commands. And the rich young ruler hears those, and he's feeling pretty good about it because it's like, uh, I've done those since I was just a child. You know, In other words, uh, my resume speaks for itself, and I'm pretty qualified for this. Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. And he said, one thing you lack like, Go sell everything you have and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. One thing you lack can get lost amongst the many things you don't lack. You might be an extremely gifted person. You're constantly doing good things. You're helping people. You are innovative. You are responsible. You are a hard worker and a model citizen. You are a sensitive and caring friend and spouse. You're not addicted to pornography or reality TV shows. You try to pray and read the Bible every day. You're here in church. And yet, Jesus looks at us and he loves us. And he might say to us this morning, there's one thing you lack. And that one thing could be anything, but for you and for me, it's the one thing that has the potential to distract us and to confuse us and to overwhelm us. It's the thing that keeps us from following Jesus with everything that we have and that we are and that we do. We want to do something significant. We want to change the world. We want to make a difference. We want to do big things for God. We want an extraordinary life. And the trouble is that when we are more focused on doing big things for God or many things for Jesus instead of one thing of simply being with him when we're more concerned with external reputation or performance or metrics or efficiencies or achievements than with internal transformation of resting in the presence of Jesus, then Jesus comes to us and says, you're distracted. You're worried. Only one thing is needed. The message of the gospel is not God helps those who, helps, who help themselves. That's not scripture. The message of the gospel is God helps the helpless because they are helpless. On the front end, there's nothing we can do to merit God's blessing. By grace, we've been saved through faith. Our desire and motivation to do something significant, something that matters, to do something is absorbed by the significance of the cross. It's reframed by the grace of God. It is mobilized in step with and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you've experienced that kind of grace, our priorities and perspectives are radically altered. Jesus says when God's kingdom becomes our priority, we can trust him for the rest Not just to provide what we need, but to give those second things a kingdom perspective and purpose and place. And when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, when our our posture is one of open-handed reception and humility, we are given the gift of extraordinary life in the midst of the ordinary, the ongoing walk. We are thoroughly content to sit at the feet of Jesus. When I was little, my my dad was a camp manager at a Christian camp about 40 miles away called Hanging Rock. So every night we went to chapel. And there was a song that got sung over and over and over Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. In grace. It's a bit disconcerting to look someone full in the face, even if their face is wonderful. But the preeminent, the distinctive, the, the one thing that Jesus said was the thing was what Jesus called out as the essence of worship. And that was attentiveness, attunement, adoration, to sit at the feet of Jesus, seeing him as he really is, getting beyond our... our perceptions and our preconceptions of him, getting beyond just reading about him for a class or for a Bible study, getting beyond the the nice, safe, all-American Jesus that is predictable and boring, maybe we are reluctant to look him in the eyes. Maybe we've never really looked Jesus in the eye. And there might be all sorts of reasons for that. We are weighed down by our own shame. Or we are weighed down by the responsibility to get it right, to get it perfect. Or we are confused or apathetic or distracted by schedules or even by an inappropriate attachment with good things. Maybe we're just uncomfortable with that kind of intimacy. And yet, Jesus says, look at my eyes. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. David Henderson's good friend and Billy Graham's brother-in-law, Leighton Ford, wrote this. This is brilliant. Grace opens my eyes as I wait so that I may see both giver and gift and be grateful. Each of us is called to a life patterned by Christ, a life not shaped by inner compulsions or captive to outer expectations. But drawn by the inner voice of love, to listen to this voice, we need to pay careful attention to where our inner and outer selves disconnect and where they need to come together in a beautiful pattern that reflects Jesus, whose inner life with his Father and outer life of ministering to others were very much one. Colossians 3 in the message says, Look up, be alert. what is going on around Christ, see things from his perspective. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, is with Christ in God. He is your life. When you turn your eyes on Jesus, when you look full in his wonderful face, you recognize that his eyes are on you. And then you recognize that he is expanding your periphery to see what is around you. And those who have no clue how to even look at Jesus in the first place. You'll get to be the hands and the feet and the ears and the voice and the heart of Jesus. So our worship always has in, in turning, a turning outward, being at the feet of Jesus always has a turning outward. Eugene Peterson says, worship does not satisfy our hunger for God. It whets our appetite. The more we see of Jesus, the more we know there's so much more to be seen. The more we see God's perfection, the more we realize the imperfection all around us. True worshipers look outward, noticing the world they live in and longing to make a difference, to do the to the injustice, poverty, and pain that surround them. A worshiper of Jesus cannot turn a blind eye to these things. So the the story of Martha and Mary really can be condensed to this phrase. Don't just do something, sit there. But this one always follows. Don't just sit there, do something. It's a, it's a realignment, a reworking of our priorities. But worshiping at the feet of Jesus always leads us into a proverbial washing one another's feet as well. It's not a pendulum swing from the kitchen to the chapel, from singing worship songs to feeding the poor. It is a whole life abiding with Christ. I, I love the story of Brother Lawrence. 17th century monk. He'd been a soldier in France, and got wounded, been completely wrecked by Jesus. Shows up, shows up at a monastery, changes his name to, from Nicholas to Lawrence, and gets assigned to the kitchen. And he loves it. So every day, people love to hang out with him because the most mundane had taken on a kind of sacredness. He called God the Lord of all pots and pans and things. (laughs) Nothing was dull because every day was in expectation that God was present. Practicing the presence of God was as real in the kitchen as in the sanctuary. And... Mary demonstrates in this story that hospitality is not just the casserole, but it is giving who you are, giving our time, our undistracted attention, our presence to Jesus.